0: We're in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 30, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where (coughs) I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon it once a year with the blood of sin offer, the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Every time that we look at a new implement or a piece of furniture in the tabernacle, we might at first think, What is this even here for? Until we look for and find Christ in them, they don't seem to make any sense at all. But as soon as we open our eyes and our minds to what we are being shown about him, it all becomes clear. Today's verses may not make much sense to you yet, but even before reading them, we can make a few logical deductions about what they must picture. For example, we have incense. Pretty much everyone knows what (laughs) incense is for and what it does. When you light it, it smells good. It smokes, and the smoke rises up and out of sight. If we understand the significance of the burnt offerings from previous sermons, we should at least get a hint of an idea about what this incense must then be picturing. If so, then everything else should naturally begin to fall into place as well. This is especially so if we read through the Bible and evaluate the 130 or so times the incense is mentioned. Eventually, we can form a general idea of what God is showing us, However, as incense has only been mentioned once in the Bible to this point, and that concerning what we're about to evaluate, it may take a bit of explaining. As an advanced clue, our text verse for today comes from Job chapter 9. Here's what he says. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in a court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me. So that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands, I cannot. Job noted that God is not a man. And because of that, there was no way for him to talk directly to him and get an answer from him. And so he hoped for a mediator to help him out. Someone who could bridge the gap between finite him and the infinite God. This is what he desired. Incense goes up from its place and it eventually diffuses into the heavens. It pictures that transition which Job longed for. If his prayers could just go up and be received by a mediator who was qualified to take them and then to pass them on, then all would be A-OK. Likewise, if we were sure that our prayers were so handled, then we would surely know that everything is A-OK. Well, guess what? If you know Jesus Christ, then everything is A-OK. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. The first is the altar of incense. That's verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. The altar now to be described gets its name from these words, mizbeach miktar ketoret, or an altar to burn incense The word ketoret or incense is from the same root as the word kitor, meaning clouds or smoke. Thus it means smoke or the odor of a burning sacrifice or incense. However, the altar will also have a different name ascribed to it, which we will see in just a bit. There are quite a few things about this altar which are perplexing to scholars. But if we simply take each verse one at a time and consider what we already know from the description of the other tabernacle furniture... Then we'll have very few problems with these details. Verse 1 going on, You shall make it of acacia wood. Like much of the other furniture, the base material of this altar is to be acacia wood. Without going into all of the detail of the past, a very short description of acacia and its properties will suffice as a good reminder. It's a very slow-growing tree that would be readily available in the area where they are. Its heartwood is dark, and it's reddish-brown, and it's very beautiful when sanded and polished it is resistant to decay, it is thus considered an incorruptible wood. Verse 2, a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. And a ma or cubit comes from the word m or mother, thus it is the mother measurement. It is the distance from the tip of the middle finger all the way down to the bend of the arm at the elbow, thus this will be about 18 inches long. And verse 2 continues, it shall be square. So far, we have seen that the brazen altar and the breastplate of judgment were both square. The altar carried the idea of judgment. The breastplate signified judgment and intercession. This third piece, which is square, will logically follow as intercession then. The breastplate of judgment is what ties the two between the brazen altar and the intercession of the altar of incense. The fact that this is square, like the other two implements, signifies that the scope of the intercession reaches to the four corners of the earth without distinction or interruption. It is without any limits. Verse 2 continues, and two cubits shall be its height. In total, the altar will be a half yard square and about a yard in height. It is one half a cubit taller than both the ark and the table of showbread. That it is two cubits in height is not without significance. Wollinger defines the number saying this. It is the first number by which we can divide another. And therefore, in all its uses, we may trace this fundamental idea of division or difference. Verse 2 continues. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. The karnotav, or horns, were not to be made separately and then fixed onto the altar. Instead, they were to grow out of the altar, just as a horn grows out of the head of an animal. Something particular needs to be noted now, though. Here's a portion of the description of the brazen altar. Here's what it said in Exodus 27, 2. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. If you noticed, the number of horns given for the brazen altar is four, but the number of them given here for this altar is not mentioned. There must be a reason for this. Verse 3, and you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. Again, like the other wooden implements, this one is to be overlaid. The word is safa. It is identical to the verb safah, which means to look out or about or to spy or to keep watch. Unlike the brazen altar, this one is to be overlaid with zahav tahor or gold pure. It is the same overlay as that of the Ark of the Covenant and the Table of Showbread. Thus, it will carry the same significance here as it did for those. One new word is introduced into the Bible here, which is gog or top. It is probably a reduplication of the word ga'ah, which means exalted. And so by analogy, it is the top of an altar or the roof of a house or something like that. Verse 3 continues, And you shall make a molding for it of gold all around. The zur, or molding, was introduced with the Ark of the Covenant. One was also prescribed for the table of showbread. Now a third implement is to be given such a molding. Like the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread, this molding is lacking the adjective... Pure. Although the overlay is specifically said to be pure in all three, the same adjective lacks in all three concerning the molding. Because of the complete covering in gold, this golden molding at the top, the altar, all of it, it will be known as the golden altar in Scripture. It is first called this in Exodus 39, verse 38. Verse 4 Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both sides. Like several other pieces, this is to have rings attached to it. And like the other gold pieces, the rings for this one are also lacking the adjective pure. They will carry a similar signification as the other times that they were mentioned. The word for ring, same word used in the other instances, is tabaat. It means ring, but it comes from another word, taba. That is a verb which means to sink. This then gives the idea of a signet ring, which is sunk into clay or into wax in order to make a seal. From this comes the idea of any ring. Unlike the ark and the table, the rings for this altar are to be under the molding. It will be carried with only the top of the altar elevated above the priests. Verse four continues, you shall place them on its two sides and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. Unlike the other furniture with rings and poles, this one only has two rings. They are made of gold and under the molding of the table. They will be used for holding the poles that bear and transport this altar. Verse 5, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Again, exactly as has been seen in the previous instances, these badim or poles are to be of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And again, just as before, the adjective pure is lacking from the description. Verse 6, and you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. This golden altar of incense was to be put directly in front of the veil in the middle of the holy place between the table of showbread on one side and the menorah on the other side. As it is said to be before the Ark of the Testimony, it indicates that the Ark and it are intricately connected together. However, it also says before the mercy seat. Therefore, it is also intricately connected to that. It is tied to both individually. Finally, it says that it is where I will meet with you. This is speaking of the presence of the Lord above the mercy seat between the cherubim which are on it. These three items, the ark, the mercy seat, and the altar of incense are all so intricately connected that the author of Hebrews says that the altar is actually on the other side of the veil. Here's what he says. In Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 2 through 5, for a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil... The part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This description by the author of Hebrews is not in error. Rather, John Lang explains what is intended. He says, for this reason, we would find rather a theological idea than an archaeological error in that passage of the epistle to the Hebrews, which puts it in the holy of holies. For this is the altar by which its incense symbolizes the prayer of the high priest. In other words, it's so intricately connected with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where the high priest goes behind once a year. It's so intricately connected with that that it's actually described as being in that room. And that's a theological point that he's trying to make when he says that, which pertains to each and every one of us right here, right now. In this verse, there's a play on words occurring, which is provided to give insights into the work of Jesus Christ. The veil or parochet comes from the word perek, which means cruelty or rigor. That then comes from an unused root, meaning to break apart or to fracture. In this, we can see where cruelty or rigor then comes into play. The mercy seat, or kaporet, indicates a satisfaction. This comes from the word kafar, which in this situation means to appease or to satisfy. The two words, paroket and kaporet, are spelled with the same letters, but they're simply realigned from pe resh kaf tav to kaf pe resh tav. The letter kaf is simply moved forward. The letter pe means mouth, and it signifies to blow or to scatter. Kaff is represented by an open hand and signifies to open, allow, or to tame. On one side, there is cruelty and rigor. On the other side, there's mercy or satisfaction. The only thing that would pass through this veil each day would be the smell of the incense as it wafted through the air. An altar of incense made of wood and gold, its dimensions are exacting and precise. It has a special purpose, so I am told. To know what that purpose is would be rather nice. There it sits in the holy place, before the veil it is set. But despite it being there, it does not seem obstructed at all. Even though I am not behind the veil yet, it seems that because of this altar behind it, I can call. Yes, there is an altar which makes this possible. He is there receiving every wondrous puff of perfume smoke. I believe that because of him, to God, my prayers are audible. It is as if he heard me from the first moment I spoke. Our second thought today is priestly responsibilities. It's verses 7 through 10. Verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. The Hebrew reads ketoret samim, or smoke of spices. The altar of incense is introduced at the beginning of this chapter. The composition of that incense will be given to close out the chapter. There it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Take sweet spices, Stactean, and Galbanum, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of each of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. This incense of spices shall be burnt baboker, baboker, or by morning, by morning. This was the priest's duties, just as he was accomplishing another duty. Verse 7 continues When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. When the lamps of the menorah were trimmed at morning time, the incense was to be burned on it at the same time. This says Aaron, but it is the priesthood of Aaron which is implied. Whatever priest was given the responsibility could do this. We know this from Luke. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was given this privilege. As far as the burning of the incense, it is unknown how it was done. Some scholars see this altar as having a grating where the ashes would fall through. Nothing is said of this. Some scholars see the incense as being brought in and burnt on a golden censer. This seems more likely, but it is still only speculation. As it's not stated explicitly, it's not the focus of the details. That incense is burnt on the altar is what is. Verse 8, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. As in the morning, Aaron was also to burn incense on this altar at twilight, or literally, Ben Ha Arbaim, between the evenings. These then are the same times in the morning and the evening sacrifices which were made upon the brazen altar. The two are being linked together in a very unique way, just as this altar is linked to the ark and the mercy seat in a unique way, and just as the altar and the menorah are being linked together in a unique way. Everything is tying in the details of this special altar of incense. As a bonus for you, which is found in the words et hanerot ben harabayim, or lights the lamps at twilight, the word love, or chava, is found in an acrostic of these words. The first letter of each word, aleph he bet he, spells hava or love verse 8 continues a perpetual incense before the lord throughout your generations the incense was to burn perpetually morning and evening for as long as the Aaronic priesthood was in effect every generation that came was to continue this practice unabated morning by morning and each day between the evenings this incense was to be before or in the face of Jehovah at all times This mandate, as I said, is tied in with the timing of the care of the menorah each day as was seen in Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21, where it said, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. Verse 9, You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. The specificity here is given because the word for altar, or Mizbeach, is the same as for that of the brazen altar. It is an altar, it is square, it has horns, and so on, just like the brazen altar. Even the rising of the smoke from the different offerings of the brazen altar uses the same word as this altar here. And because of this, prohibitions were required to avoid confusion. No strange incense was to be burned on it. This means that only the prescribed incense given later in this chapter was ever to be burnt. No burn offering of any kind, nor any grain offering of any kind, nor any drink offering of any kind was to be offered on this particular altar. Finally, the fact that the offerings for both of these altars was to be made at the same time is showing a special connection between them. As the smoke rises from one, so it would rise from the other. This altar of incense is so uniquely tied to so many other items in this tabernacle that its importance cannot be downplayed in any way. Verse 10, and Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. The ritual for this mandate is found detailed in Leviticus 16, verse 18, which describes the day of atonement rituals. Here's what it says. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord And make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Verse 10 continues. Once a year, he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. The last clause said upon its horns. This clause says upon it. The horns are cleansed by the smearing of the blood. But after that, it says this in the following verse of Leviticus 16. It says, then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. The entire altar would be considered purified from uncleanness by this annual atonement provided by the high priest. Verse 10 finishes with these words, it is most holy to the Lord. Another connection to the brazen altar is revealed in these words. This altar was considered most holy to the Lord. Just as that which touched the brazen altar was to be so considered. Here's what it said back in Exodus 29 Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. A great deal of what occurs around this altar of incense is inextricably linked to the other implements of the tabernacle. So let's take a short poetic break, and then we'll come back and we'll see what all of this means. The altar is most holy to the Lord. Nothing impure should ever be brought to it. Such is the warning in God's precious word, and such is the warning I now to you submit. When we come to this altar, let us be likewise holy. Let our prayers be unstained. Let them be pure. This is what God asks of us, and so let it be, and in this manner we will be heard for sure. When we are in our time of prayer and praise, and at all other times of this life that we live, even throughout our lives, for all of our days, Let us to this precept our attention give. Our third thought today is wonderful pictures of Christ and his work. The placement of this passage here in the Bible causes some scholars a great deal of consternation. Charles Ellicott and other noted scholars find it rather puzzling that the description of this altar comes now instead of when the table of showbread and the menorah, which were maintained in the same room, were described. Hear his words. He says, why the directions concerning the altar of incense were delayed until this place instead of being given when the rest of the furniture of the holy place was described is impossible to say. Well, don't believe that. It is possible to say. He just doesn't know why. But there is certainly no reason to suspect a dislocation of the text. He was wise to say that there is no reason to suspect a dislocation of the text. In other words, it was not an accident that it's being placed here. He just doesn't see the logic of why it is, in fact, placed here. Well, there are several good reasons why it is. The first is that the earliest items recorded tell us of Christ coming to his people in order to bestow mercy and grace on them. However, this item now shows us what God has done for us in order for us to go to him. This will be seen first and foremost in what the incense pictures. Secondly, the details of the selection, ordination, and consecration of the priests was detailed in chapters 28 and 29. It would make no sense to speak of the things which the priests would daily minister to until the priests were prepared to minister. The care for the lampstand anticipated the ordination of Aaron. The daily offerings and the ministration of the altar of incense confirms that same ordination. And thirdly, There is a lesson concerning ourselves in relation to the altar of incense. The altar speaks of Christ, but in a second sense, it has an application in the people of Christ. It relates to our relationship with God through him and our duties to God because of him. The first and foremost obvious thing to do is to understand what the incense pictures. If that can be determined, then pretty much everything else will fall into its proper place. The altar is for incense, which is something which is burnt and it rises towards heaven. The word ketoret or incense, as I said earlier, is from the word ketor, which means clouds or smoke. Thus, it means smoke or the odor of a burning sacrifice or incense. The Bible explicitly states what incense pictures. We don't need to go any further with what it might mean because the Bible tells us. First, we saw that Zechariah was selected to offer incense at one point in his ministry. When that occurred, we read this in Luke chapter 1. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the altar of incense. The people were praying at the hour of incense. That gives us a clue which is then explicitly revealed in both the Old and the New Testament. In Psalm 141, it says this, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The incense and the burnt offering are tied together in this one verse, showing their unique connection. But the incense is described as if prayer This then is repeated in Revelation chapter 5 with these words. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The burning incense then pictures prayer. But prayer is intimately connected to praise, and so it has a secondary meaning adjoined to it. The next thing described is the base material for the altar, acacia. Just as before, it pictures Jesus Christ's humanity. The wood is incorruptible, just as he is. The square shape of the brazen altar, the breastplate of judgment, and the altar of incense are all tied together with the breastplate being the interconnection between the three. There is judgment, judgment and intercession, and intercession. Thus, the altar of incense signifies Christ's intercessory work on our behalf. Our prayers are offered to God through him. And through him, they are deemed acceptable to God the Father. This is explained in Hebrews chapter 7 with these words. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That this altar is square shows that his intercession reaches to the four corners of the earth without distinction or interruption. It is without limits. Next, it is described as being a single cubit square. A cubit is the mother measurement. One cubit would be the basis of everything else. Bollinger describes for us the meaning of the number one. He says there can be no doubt as to the significance of this primary number. In all languages, it is the symbol of unity. As a cardinal number, it denotes unity. As an ordinal, it denotes primacy. Therefore, the prayers of intercession of Christ are unified and they hold primacy. In other words, Prayers to God can only, only be offered through this one source. No other prayers are acceptable to God without going through his chosen mediator. So much for the RCC's prayers to Mary and to the saints and to all of the other prayers that are offered all around the world every day by false religions. There is no way that they reach God's ears because they do not go through the one mediator. The height being two cubits means that it is one half of a cubit taller than both the ark and the table of showbread. It is exalted above those. The ark is Christ embodying the law, meaning the testimony which stands for the entire law. The table of showbread reveals Christ as our bread who gave his life for us. Only in the fulfilling of the law and in the giving of his life can we stand justified and acceptable before God bollinger shows that two meaning the height is the first number by which we can divide another and therefore in all its uses we may trace this fundamental idea of division or difference there is a fundamental difference between acceptable prayers and unacceptable prayers only those prayers which rise above the law and through the completed work of christ can be considered acceptable to god those which do not are not And that means that even prayers which are done by people that are observing the law in this day are not acceptable to God. They have to rise above the law. That's Christ embodying of the law. So this is an important lesson that I'll stop and I'll tell you about. When we are told by Paul not to reinsert deeds of the law, and he says it all through his writings, he means do not reinsert deeds of the law. And particularly he says this in the book of Galatians. He uses circumcision as the benchmark. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ means nothing to you and you are a debtor to the whole law. Now what he's trying to tell us is that if we reinsert deeds of the law, whether they're not eating pork or any other thing, we are moving back down below where our prayers can now be acceptable to God. We have alienated ourselves from Christ and we cannot do that. The one cubit square symbolizes that it reaches to the four corners of the earth. The two cubits in height symbolize that these prayers have overcome the world and reached to the heavens because of Christ's intercession. This is actually made explicit in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. He says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The karnotav, or horns, were made to grow out of the altar, just as a horn grows out of the head of an animal. They are a symbol of power and strength, and thus they demonstrate the intercessory power of Christ to God for us. As they are one with the altar, then everything about this altar is typified by his power. That the number of horns is not stated is a significant omission. As far as the number of creation, the brazen altar where they did the burnt sacrifices, having four horns signified the judgment on sin throughout all of creation. However, because Christ's intercessory work is in heaven, no number of horns is given. Thus, there is a transcendence from the earthly to the heavenly in this omission. The overlay of the wood with pure gold signifies Christ's perfect purity and his absolute divinity. It also symbolizes his kingly status. He is the priest king. Therefore, it signifies Christ's divine ability to keep watch over those he intercedes for and those he mediates for. Just as a king watches over his subjects, so Christ our king watches out for us. The gold molding signifies the same as the ark and the table of the showbread. It represents his kingly status. He is, as has already been said, our priest king. After this, we were shown that unlike the other furniture, this altar only has two rings. These then picture the two things which Jesus spoke of in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, he says this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And then in John 15, we read this, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The word of God given through the Holy Spirit is represented by these two rings. They are the number of witness. They speak of the Spirit's testifying of Jesus Christ. They testify as the seal and the authority of who Christ is. The first mention of this by Jesus was when he spoke of the Old Testament scriptures. The second mention of it was when he spoke of what would be given to the apostles for the writing of the New Testament. Both are of divine origin, meaning from the Holy Spirit but both have since been handled by man and therefore the adjective pure is not used they have our taint in them even if they are the inspired word of god though the word of god is pure man's hands are fallible and his interpretations have been used in the process of sharing this word the lacking adjective is no mistake instead it is another picture for us to understand and it has been consistent in every single one of these pieces of furniture it is to these two rings into which the poles are placed These then are the two testaments themselves, the New Testament and the Old. They speak of the God-man, represented by the wood and gold. They are what makes Christ mobile to the world as the word carries him about. Each contrasting, you have the law and you have grace, but each supporting the whole and confirming the message of him. As the table can only be carried by two poles, not just one, it teaches us that should either or both testaments of the Bible be removed, we would not have a proper presentation of who Christ is. Without one or the other, we would have a faulty view of him, and without either, we would have no knowledge of him at all. As these poles and rings are just under the molding of the altar and not at its feet, it shows that Christ's intercessory work for us is near and close to us. He is our ever-present help in the time of need. That the altar is directly before the veil and before the ark and the mercy seat, it shows that even though we are still on this side of the veil— Living in this fallen world, our prayers are acceptable to God because of the embodiment of the law and the satisfaction of that law for us by the torn body of Jesus Christ, which is the veil. This unique arrangement of the altar, veil, ark, and mercy seat shows us that even though we cannot see heaven and the throne of grace with our eyes yet, our prayers are still received because of Christ's work. This is why there's that play on those two words concerning the veil and the mercy seat, the parochet and the caporet. On our side, we walk in a world of cruelty and rigor. On the other side, where our hope lies, there's mercy and satisfaction. As the smell of incense would waft through this veil each day, so our prayers pass through to the throne of God. It is the incense of the altar passing through to God where mercy is made available to the sinner, and where grace is bestowed upon the believer. The change in the letters of parroket and kaporet shows us that our sins are scattered on one side, being blown away. This is signified by the letter pay or mouth. On the other side, there's an open hand, allowing our prayers to be received, signified by the letter kaf. If you've ever wondered if your prayers are really heard by God or not, these ancient pictures show us that because of Jesus Christ, they are It is there at the seat of mercy that we now meet with the Lord. The burning of the incense at the time of the tending of the lamps shows a direct connection between the two. As the lamps picture the illumination and the ministry of God by the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, it is a direct consequence of Christ's intercession for us. As we pray, he intercedes and therefore the Spirit responds. The perpetual burning of the incense shows that Christ ever lives to intercede for us. We may be asleep at night, but there are people on the other side of the world that are awake. Christ never sleeps, he never slumbers, and he is always available when our prayers rise to him. This is why the menorah and the altar are so inextricably linked together. John Gill sums up the two functions represented by the two implements in regards to Christ's work. He says that when the priest looked after the one... He did the service of the other, and hence we learned that our intercessor and lamplighter is one and the same. He that was seen among the golden candlesticks dressing the lamps of them appears at the golden altar with a golden censer to offer up the prayers of the saints. But there is more. The timing of the two burnings is not only connected to the menorah, but it is the same time of day as the morning and evening offerings of the brazen altar. The brazen altar sacrifices speak of the consecration of the life and actions of the body and the soul to the Lord. They make a satisfaction for that which is displeasing to God. The altar of incense offering speaks of the spiritual side of the man being consecrated to the Lord. This tells of divine acceptance of what is pleasing to him, namely our prayers because of the work of Jesus Christ. Where the brazen altar sacrifices speak of atonement and reconciliation, the altar of incense offerings declare intimate fellowship with God because of that atonement and reconciliation. The two offerings both complement and complete our daily spiritual interaction with God in both act and exclamation. And finally, the timing of the two offerings are aligned with the timing of Christ's final day in his earthly ministry. He was brought before the leaders of Israel and the Gentiles in the morning and crucified between the evenings at the same time as these offerings. Thus, they are a constant reminder to God of the work of Christ on our behalf. It is no coincidence that the acrostic Havah or love is found in the words, lights the lamps at twilight. This is the same time of day that Christ died on the cross. The love of God seen in the death of his son is what made our prayers acceptable to him. Once again, this is the love of God, which is found in the high priestly ministry of Christ's cross. And I'd like to tell you something that you're the first people in the world ever to hear this outside of Mr. Magnuson, because Sergio just found that acrostic in those words. And he sent them to me and I included them in the sermon. And then yesterday I had an email with him. And so I sent him that. And outside of that, nobody's ever heard this before, that God's love is revealed right in those four words, right in the middle of this passage. Wonderful stuff, isn't it? Jesus, the light of the world, illuminated both heaven and earth with the splendor of his work. Because of him, we now have intimate fellowship with God through the offerings of our prayers and praises. These two altars are so closely connected to show us a single truth, and that truth is Christ. Each has its own purpose and design. One is a brazen altar, the place of sacrifice. The other is the altar of incense, the place of worship. Both together form the picture of one true altar, Christ. The author of Hebrews, speaking of Christ, says, We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The admonition to not offer strange incense upon this altar shows that the only prayers which are acceptable to God are those prayers which meet his exacting standards, No other prayers are acceptable except those authorized by and through his word. It is a note of exclusivity for the believer in Christ. It is also a note that the follower of Christ is never to mingle his prayers with the prayers of an unbeliever. That would be to mix the holy with the profane. It is an abomination to God. The admonition to offer no other offerings of any kind on this altar indicates that only through the work of Christ, which is realized in the other implements of the tabernacle, are prayers made acceptable to God. We can add in no works of any kind into our complete devotion to Christ. Rather, we are to trust his sacrifices and offerings alone when we submit our prayers to God. The final verse of the directions is that of atonement upon the altar. If our prayers are offered to God through Jesus, who is the altar of incense, and yet the atonement must be made upon the altar, guess what? It shows a truth which is inescapable. Arthur Pink sums the thought up. Listen carefully. Our prayers are so faulty. Our praises so feeble. Our worship so far below the level of what it ought to be that even our holy things need to be cleansed by the blood of atonement. How humbling is this, he says. In other words, even our prayers are defiled because we are defiled. The atonement upon the altar shows the need for Christ's continued intercessory work for us. Though we are deemed acceptable to God because of Christ, it is only because of Christ. Without his past work, our prayers would be unheard. Without his ongoing work, our prayers would continue to be unheard. The annual atonement of the altar shows that the virtue of Christ's intercession is fully complete by his earthly suffering once for all time. We need nothing else, no sacrifice of any kind to be acceptable to God. Instead, we only need our one intercessor, our true intercessor, Jesus Christ. Such is the marvel and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Not only did he save us, but he keeps on saving us. Not only did he purify us, but he keeps on doing so. A direct example of this intercessory work is seen not long after the construction of the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 16, a rebellion takes place. At that time, the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. But because of this altar signifying Christ's intercession, the plague against them was arrested before it could kill the entire congregation. Here's what it says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement for the people. If you're like me and you wonder why God doesn't just strike you dead and cast you into the pit of heck for the things you do now you can see why. Christ is there. He is that altar, and he is ever interceding for you, even when you blow it in a major way. As for a life application concerning what this altar signifies, we can discern from it three major precepts which we can apply to our own life, our prayer life. The first is that it shows us just what prayer is. Incense is something that needs to be lit in order to smell. Unless the fire is kindled, it just lays there useless but once it's lit, it begins to smoke and to smell sweet. It then arises towards heaven. Likewise, unless we have fire in our heart concerning our prayers, they are useless. They are vain repetitions without any fragrance at all. But if we are fervent in our prayers, they will rise in a smoke of wondrous joy to the Lord, who is delighted to hear them and to respond to them. Secondly, the placement of the altar should be as a clue to where our prayers belong in our lives. We first have to come to Christ through his sacrifice. Only then are our prayers acceptable to God. Sin must always, always be dealt with before our prayers can be responded to. As the altar of incense is in the holy place, it is before both the menorah and the table of showbread. The menorah shows that we are to be a light to the world that the menorah illuminates where the south side is where the table of showbread is it indicates that we are to illuminate the work of christ our bread of life the altar of incense stands between the two it teaches us that our light will be ineffective and our proclamation will become stale and moldy without an effective prayer life both are hallowed by the presence of the altar of incense in our lives As it stands before the veil, it shows that our prayers must reach into the most holy place before going through the veil. As Christ is the veil, which is explicitly said in the book of Hebrews, He is the veil, our prayers must be offered to God through Him. When they are, they reach the throne of grace and the seat of mercy. Though we are in a land of cruelty on this side, our prayers rise even to the seat of heaven because of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we are taught how to cultivate our prayers through this altar. The altar was tended to morning and evening and it burned perpetually in the holy place. We should prepare ourselves morning and night in our contemplation of our prayers to and our praises of the Lord. With this preparation our prayers will be constantly streaming to the Lord throughout the day and the night. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. We can only do this if we're prepared to do so. We're on a journey. We're heading west and back to that wonderful land of delight promised to us by a God who cannot lie. As we continue our trek, we should ever be praising, ever praying, and ever petitioning this wonderful God who has given us all things through Jesus Christ the Lord. If you've never made a commitment to him, today is the day. Let's get that resolved so your prayers will be heard by the one who sits on heaven's throne waiting to present your prayers to his Father. So very quickly, let me tell you how to do that. The Bible shows us all of these pictures we keep seeing again and again is that there is a disconnect between God and man. He's out there in the infinite realm and there is a veil which keeps us from getting through to him. It is an infinite separation and it is called sin. We can't pray to God. I'm sorry, all of those prayers that Paul talked about, the Shintos, the Buddhists and the Muslims and all of these false cults all around the world that he's been highlighting these past months, all of them are unheard by God. God will hear the prayer of a sinner one prayer. God, I want Jesus Christ in my life. He will hear that. And that's pictured in what we just saw today. He won't hear any other prayer by them. I'm sorry if something happens and it seems like God heard it and it responded, somebody got better. It was because of time and chance. It was not because God responded to their prayers. It is impossible for those prayers to go anywhere except through Jesus Christ. And that's the lesson that we're being taught here is that we get our sin debt resolved first and then our prayers are acceptable to God. So what you must do is get that sin debt resolved first. And the way you do that is by saying, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died for me, the Ark of the Mercy Seat, embodying the law. I believe that he came out of the grave in order to prove what he said he would do. He is the God-man, pictured by all of these implements, wood and gold. He is the one that can make it possible for me to go back to my Heavenly Father. That petition that Job made right at the beginning of our sermon it is possible because we have a mediator. We have the finite united to the infinite. We have the God-man. So if you've never resolved this before, please do it today. And then after that, be pleased to pray to your Father. As you're driving, keep your eyes open. But as you're as you're golfing, as you're out at mission work on Saturday morning, if you're building a roof on your house, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You don't need to be on your prayers with your eyes closed. What you need to be doing is talking to the Lord. You talk to your wife, don't you? You talk to your wife and you talk to your mom yesterday or this morning. Everybody here talks to somebody and you don't stop and close your eyes and say, gee, let me talk to you about work today. You talk to each other. And that's what God wants is for your prayers to be constant. Pray without ceasing and let them be fervent. Let them be fervent to the Lord. All of this is seen here. But get the sin debt corrected first. Call on Jesus as your Lord and then everything else will work as it should. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 61 as verses 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, four corners of the altar, all the way up to the end of the earth, I cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Wonderful stuff. Next week is Exodus 30. It's verses 11 through 16. This is for the people's atonement. It's entitled The Ransom Payment. It's our 84th Exodus sermon. And I'll remind you as I do each week, week after week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? All right, as we have each week for the past 10 million sermons in Genesis and Exodus, we have a poem based on these verses. And I found out something special today. I've got a gentleman here that's made a poem out of the book of Matthew. I didn't know that. You know, here I do this every single week and here he's written this beautiful poem based on the verses of Matthew. But here we go with ours from uh, Exodus 1 through 10. This is entitled The Altar of Incense. You shall make an altar to burn incense on, so you shall do. You shall make it of acacia wood as I am now instructing you. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square as instructed by me. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns of one piece with it shall be. And you shall overlay its top its sides all around, no detail shall you forsake, and its horns with pure gold, and you shall for it a molding of gold all around make. Two gold rings you shall make for it, under the molding on both its sides, this detail you shall not omit. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, as is understood." And you shall put it before the veil, that is, before the ark of the testimony, so you shall do, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning, this shall be. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it, sweet incense to me. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it at that time too, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations, this he shall do. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall pay heed, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. No priest shall consider such a deed. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns, once a year with the blood, so he shall do, of the sin offering of atonement. This is what shall be conveyed to him by you. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it, throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord, for this altar, these are my expectations." O God, how marvelous you are in all ways for giving the true altar of incense to us. And so forever, yes, even through eternal days, we can petition you through our Lord Jesus. All of these pictures from Israel's past have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And through him and his work, we can fellowship at last. Yes, through Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Praises, yes, praises, we shall eternally sing to you, O God. And forever in your marvelous light, golden streets, we shall trod. Hallelujah and amen. Now, I'll tell you that uh, I remembered who I was supposed to be praying for today, so I will tell you right now so that we can all have him in prayer when we close is Doug Kellerson. He's the guy that does the artwork for every one of our sermons. He's in Ireland, and yesterday he did not know if he could finish this week's because he has liver pains, and he was really in distress, but that guy got up last night, and he finished that, and we have a uh, photo to include with the, the sermon on YouTube today, so we'll add him into our prayers as well. Heavenly Father, We thank you that our prayers are heard. And the picture is all the way back at the beginning of the law. I mean, people wonder if you hear us or not. The answer is yes and it's no. It's yes if we are in Christ and it's no if we are not. But we thank you that our prayers are heard because of Christ and that they do rise above the work of the law, which you did. They even rise to your heavenly throne because of what Christ did. And we thank you that he is our bread of life and we can be nourished by him and we can feed on him daily then we have the sustenance to live by his body. And we thank you that he is the light of the world and that he illuminates every part of scripture and every part of our lives according to his wisdom. And we thank you for that as well. And we thank you that the prayer and the praises are right in between those two implements, showing us that with an effective prayer life, everything else in our holy place will be okay. And we thank you that our prayers do go through that veil. And on the other side is an open hand, how wonderful it is that even in the words that are used, there are clues as to what's going on in your word. Thank you for that, Lord. And we do pray for Doug Callerson. We pray for Lisa Bunker and her father. And we pray for anybody else that's suffering with trials or tribulations or woes at this time right now. We pray for them. And we thank you that we're allowed to do so because of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his shed blood. And we pray for the ministry that uh, Joel and his wife and children are going to be going into in Seattle here shortly. We pray that you would... Bless them abundantly and meet every need according to your wisdom so that they can continue the precious work of getting the Bible out to people that have never seen it before. Then help us to cherish the word that we have just as much as those people which have never had it and for the first time in their lives, hold it. Let each day of our reading of the word of God be a new day, a new chance to say, how marvelous is this word. Help us to tremble at what it says and to apply it to our lives And Lord, thank you for allowing me to preach on this passage and each passage so far. Despite my failing lips, the message is clear because of the glory which is revealed in your word. You are shown glorious because of it. Thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for each person here, and I ask that you just bless them in the day ahead, and we now commit the Lord's table to you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there Paul writes these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks for it. He would have said these words, Baruch Adonai ha min Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this. In remembrance of me and in the same manner he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well he would have said baruch atah adonai melech haolam borei blessed art thou o lord our god king of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the lord Oh, I didn't bring... Just stand there and grab them, would you? Just wait there. Yes.
1: I forgot that this morning. Yes. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. She'll get it from you. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. See that hand? Oh, oh, it looks great. Praise the Lord. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: I forgot my plate up here for those today. I only have 17,322 things to do when I come in here on Sunday morning. I forgot one of them today. <laughs> poor mom lord god we thank you for mothers thank you that uh we have such a close church here such a close fellowship of people we're all brothers and sisters in christ because of you and we thank you for the family that we meet here and those that meet online with us who are with us in spirit we thank you that they're there and we ask that you bless each and every person that is out there watching right now or that joins us on youtube later and thank you for that and lord god we just want to exalt you, Jesus our Lord, for what you have done. Everything, it just keeps coming back to you. Sermon after sermon, I'll pick up a passage and I'll say, well, I have an idea. I'm pretty sure I know what this picture is. And then all of a sudden there's 10,000 more things included in it. And when I'm done with these sermons, Lord, I never stand less amazed than the one before. What a marvel your word is. What a treasure. We thank you for it. We exalt you for it. Please uh, take care of each person here as they travel out and back home today. And if anybody is traveling this week ahead, which several several are, we pray for them to have safe and uh, happy times in their travels. And Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.